Lord, and do not the things which I say. Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will show you to him to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house, and dig deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Verse 49. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the, up, upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Bibles this morning, if I could ask you to join me in Ruth chapter number 1, and then also hold that Luke 6. We did our scripture reading in Luke chapter 6. We'll come back to Luke 6 at the end, but if you've got your other hand, or maybe you just drop a piece of paper into Luke, uh, if I could get you to come over to the book of Ruth. Ruth is in the Old Testament, and Lord willing, we'll probably spend the next four weeks or so in the book of Ruth. Uh, if you're struggling to find Ruth, it's not that hard to find. What you've got to do is you go to Psalms. Just open the Bible to the middle, that's Psalms, and start going to the left. You'll come across, uh, then you'll come across from Psalms, you'll find uh, maybe the Kings or the Chronicles, or even the Samuels. There's two Samuels, two Kings, two Chronicles. Uh, find those, and then keep going left. Then you get this little time, and if you go past Ruth, you'll hit Judges, all right? If you hit Joshua and Judges, you went too far, come back to the right just a little bit. It's a very small book. In my Bible, it's only three pages long. And so it's surrounded by these big books that have big, long chapters on both sides. Ruth is just kind of stuck in there. 85 verses, that's all. You can read out loud the book of Ruth. You can read it out loud in about 14 minutes. It's a great little book packed with all kinds of great themes. The redemption that God has for His people is a theme that is woven all throughout. In fact, the word Redeemer is used in the book. There's other themes that I just really love and we'll have the chance to look at as we go through. The fact that God uses a Gentile in the Old Testament Reminds me that God is not ethnocentric. God cares about all the peoples of the world. I love the fact that this is a book about a lady. We can use that information in our current society that God uses ladies for His purposes. There are all kinds of really good themes all throughout here. And the book of Ruth foreshadows the Lord Jesus. If I can just give you a Bible study tip... When you read through the Old Testament, use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. Be careful about looking at the Old Testament and seeing, well, David took a stone and he slew his Goliath, so I need to get stones and slay my Goliath. That's not the point. It's not the point at all. There are a lot of really good points that you can get from the Old Testament, but it's best that you take them from the New Testament. Another way to say that is interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Jesus did that. When the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, He was on the road to Emmaus with the two, two disciples. And one of the things that He did with the two disciples, the Scripture says that He walked through those Old Testament prophecies so that they would be able to see that those Old Testament prophecies pointed at Christ. So when you come to the Old Testament, interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. That's what I hope that we'll be able to do today. The, the overarching theme that I see in this passage, we'll actually walk through Ruth chapter 1 today. There's an overarching theme that I see here is God's faithfulness. We've sung this morning, great is thy faithfulness. Oh, he has taken, taken our lives and made something beautiful out of them. That's because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so today, I hope for an overarching theme throughout today's message, I hope that you'll grab this. When the storms of life come, you'll find that He is a shelter in whom you can trust. When the storms of life come, you will find that He is a shelter in whom you can trust. 
And we'll see the faithfulness of God throughout the passage today. If I can just take a minute, kind of reflect back on some of the songs that we sang this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Comes straight out of Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22. Here's what it says. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Just allow that to settle in into your mind, friend. We, born into our sin, separated from a holy God, deserve nothing but hell forever. And yet, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross and take our sin. And it is because of His mercy that we are not consumed. Oh, these are important words. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. And I hope that you say from the bottom of your heart this morning, great is your faithfulness. Numbers 23 and verse 19 says, God is not a man that He should lie. Neither is He the Son of Man that He should repent. He does not change His mind. He is a faithful God from beginning until the end, from everlasting to everlasting. Hath He not said and shall He not do it? That's a rhetorical question. There's no need to answer it. He said, do it. He's always faithful to His promises. And has He spoken, and shall He not make it good? He is faithful, and you can seek shelter in Him. Buy into a mentality that says, God only does good things to those people who are good people, and He only does bad things to those people who are bad people. That type of mentality will make you to think whenever there's something bad that comes up in someone's life, it's a result of the fact that they were doing bad. Remember the words of Jesus, it rains on the just and on the unjust. Let me just bring that down to us and be at home with us for just a minute. Bad things happen to good people. They do. This week marks, I think, the sixth year anniversary of the Nichols, Nickel family home invasion. And if you were with us at that time, you would know the details of that story. I cannot tell that story without getting choked up. A family that left behind the luxuries of the country within which they were born to come and carry the Gospel And the very people that they came to carry the Gospel to despitefully used them. And our friends ended up having to leave the country because of terrible things that happened to them. They didn't quit. They just went and served God somewhere else. But friend, if you buy into this idea that God only lets bad things happen to people who are bad, you have to somehow blame God for what happened to the Nichols. But instead, can I encourage you this morning, when the trials in life come up, and the storms of life come up, you can seek Him for shelter. You can go to Him. Remember, bad things happen to good people as well. And when they do, don't go looking for shelter somewhere else, for you'll find that there will be nothing but heartache to be found in other places. Oh, you can find shelter in Him. And He will be the one that will provide the shelter and He will do it in ways that you will never dream would be so glorious for your life. So many people go running to other things. Within our society, somebody gets sick in the family. We try the doctor and it doesn't work. We try prayer and nothing changes. Can I just be honest with us this morning? Because I counsel a lot of folks and we end up and we go try the glass man. Friend, please, don't let yourself go down that path. He, our Heavenly Father, is a shelter in whom you can trust. I'd much rather get to my... And I'd much rather know that I'm on my deathbed having trusted God to bring me to this point. And if it's His choice for me to go home to be with Him, which is better, if it's His choice for me to go home and be with Him, I would rather that I brought Him glory to my dying breath. For my whole purpose in my life is to bring glory to God. And even my death can be bringing glory to God. I'd rather be there 
than get to my deathbed kicking and screaming and hating God for every moment that I've gone through this trial. So let me remind you, when the trials of life, the storms of life come, you will find that He is a shelter in whom you can trust. Come with me to the book of Ruth. Chapter number 1. We're going to find Naomi walking through some terrible tragedies. I think overall, the book of Ruth is about Ruth. That's why it's named that way. I think, we don't know for sure, I think that this book was written by the prophet Samuel. It was most likely written generations after Ruth lived. By the end, I think, end of today's sermon, I think you'll see why that is. However, the first chapter is not the story of Ruth. The first chapter is the story of Naomi. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law, and there's a lot of tragedies that happen in her life. Let's have a look at verse number 1. We'll see this lady, Naomi, and we'll see her hit some terrible tragedies. Verse number 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons, Milon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. They came into the country of Moab and continued there. Notice in the beginning of the verse 1, it says that it was the time when the judges ruled. We don't know exactly which judge. You can do some math and kind of come up with some of the later judges. Perhaps it falls into that range. Jair or Jephthah, one of those. The overarching theme throughout the book of Judges, however, was that there was no king in the land and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so here, sees that there's a famine in Israel, and instead of seeking shelter in God, he sought shelter elsewhere. You notice that it says there in verse number 1 that he was from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He went there to go and find some food in Moab, and the word sojourn means that he did not plan to go there and live there permanently. He went to live there for a short while, having no what was to come. His name is Elimelech, as you see in verse number 2. Elimelech, the name means, my God is king. And yet, this was the very act of putting his trust in someone else other than God who should have been his king. He walked right out of the promised land and went to the literal enemy of Israel to try to find food. Can I just say this this morning? friend, spending time in the world will directly impact your spiritual walk. Spending time in the world will directly impact your spiritual walk. Elimelech, in the moment of gathering up his family, wife, and two children, has no idea what is to come. All he knows is, I've heard there's food in Moab, so I'll go live in Moab. The guy who says, my God is king, left Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and went to live in a place that was to be desired. That's what Moab means, to be desired. He looked upon that and saw, I can get physical help there, and off he went. I don't know, Scripture doesn't say, and I have a feeling, however, that he probably did not spend much time in prayer about this decision. Off he went. I wonder how often it is in our lives, and this is not the point of the passage, but I think it's worth noting as your pastor, I wonder how often in our lives we make decisions based on what we see temporary. Example, perhaps you get an offer, an opportunity to take a job and it's in another place. I hope that you found being in amongst brothers and sisters in Christ a faith family is important for your spiritual walk. And and perhaps an opportunity comes up for you to take a position in your career in another place. Can I encourage you this morning, 
when a job opportunity comes up in another place, the very first question that you should be asking for your own spiritual health and the spiritual health of your family is, can I find a good church to be a part of when I get there? That should be the number one question on your mind. Not so much, can we find a house to live in, or are we going to have a vehicle, or are we going to be paid well, or is the employer going to take care of my transportation and my repatriation, but instead, is there a body of believers that I can plug, unplug from here and plug in there? Because you would be surprised how many people see some high salary and quickly they run to go and get a job there not realizing spending time in the world will directly impact your spiritual walk. And suddenly, they go to a new place, there's no church that they can be involved in, and then they begin slowly to just walk away from the faith. Tragedy, if you take your children into that. Give them ten years in that setting, and you can mark it down. They won't be looking to walk after God. If it were me, and you look at me and you say, you're a pastor. Let's say I wasn't a pastor, and I was in a career Many of you know, I have background, I could be in a different career. If I was in a, in a different career, and an opportunity came for me to move my family to a different town, I want to tell you the very first question I'm going to be asking is, what church is in that town that I can move out of this body into that body? so that I can be a part of a church because I want my family to be around, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. I think Phil and Sarah have been a great example of that. Let that soak into us. That they already had it lined up. Before they left here, they knew what church they're going to. They're going to take their family from this church to that church. They asked us, would you write a letter of reference for us so that the new church will receive us in fellowship? So very important. Or if I can give another practical example, oh, how often I hear a young lady says to me something like, Pastor, I met a young man, and, and we've been dating for the last couple of months, and I think I'm going to marry this guy. And then I just ask the obvious number one question that she should have asked on day one when she first met him. I ask him, does he love Jesus more than he loves you? And she goes, um, well, we haven't really talked about that. You're walking down the wrong road, sister. And I'll flip it and say, young men, it doesn't matter how pretty she is or what family she comes from. If she doesn't love Jesus more than she loves you, you're walking down the wrong road. Those are the number one questions that should be asked in your mind when you meet that other person that you think is going to be your significant other. If you spend time in the world, it's going to directly impact your spiritual walk. I hope you care about your spiritual walk enough to where you would be asking these questions. And off Elimelech takes his family, and into Moab they go. Let's read verse number 3. And Elimelech never saw this coming. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left in her two sons. Husband just died, left her in a foreign nation with two sons, Malon and Chilion. Interesting, their names. Malon means weakling, and Chilion means frail. She just got left with two weakling boys in a far country, Moab. Oh, let me take a minute and unpack Moab for you. What a terrible place to be. I know that at home in Israel there was a famine, but she, the family is now in Moab. She's there with two weakling sons, and she's there in a foreign country that is far from God. Let me say how far. If you don't remember where Moab came from, Moab is the, 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 the forefather, Moab himself. Moab was the son of Lot. You remember Lot and Abraham? And Sodom and Gomorrah? And you remember how Lot ran away from Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife turned, you remember the story, his wife turned and was turned into a pillar of salt and there's Lot in a cave with his two daughters. Remember that? Moab is the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Terrible start. And then you watch, as Moab grows into a people, they took up a god named Chemosh, 
was a lot like Baal. And they talk about in the worship of Chemosh, sacrificing children and self-mutilation. God told the people of Israel, have absolutely nothing to do with the Moabites. God knew. You spend time with them in the world, they're going to rub off and affect you. And by the way, Solomon does it. You remember King Solomon, the son of King David, beloved son of King David. Richest guy, wisest guy, ends up making a high place to Chemosh in Israel. You see, you spend time with the world, it rubs off and impacts your life. In Numbers 22, there was a guy named Balak. I don't know if that, that name's ringing a bell right now. Balak was the king of Moab. And he hired a guy, and this name might be a bit more familiar with you for you, Balaam. Balaam was the prophet that rode the donkey and the donkey talked to him. You remember that? Balaam got hired to go and curse Israel on behalf of Moab. Moab saw that Israel was coming out of Egypt. Moab saw this nation's going to overtake us. And so Moab hired Balaam, stand on the mountaintop, and curse God's people. Balaam did his best. He stood on the top of the mountain, and he tried time after time. I just think this is a hilarious story. He stands on top of the mountain, and he looks at the king, and he goes, I'm going to do my best. I know you want me to curse them. God won't let me, but I'm going to do my best. Hold on a second. And he'd start to open his mouth, and blessings would just fall out. Balaam had it wrong from day one. You don't mess with God's people. That was Numbers 22. One book later is Deuteronomy chapter 23. God places a curse on Moab, and I want you to hear the curse that God places on them. And it's directly tied to the fact that they tried to curse his people. Here's Deuteronomy 23 in verse number 3. The Moabites shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. That's not... Guys, that's not, I don't want a Moabite to come to the temple. This is, a Moabite is not allowed to be a part of the people. You're not allowed to be a part of the congregation or the assembly. You're, a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever, because they hired against thee Balaam the son of Beor of Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse thee. So because they had tried to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel, God placed a curse upon Moab. He said, you won't be allowed to have your people as a part of my people for ten generations. And I actually think that when he said for ten generations, that that was metaphorical because he then uses the word forever. Forever. I think that the phrase for ten generations would be like we would say, not in a million years. It's not like, okay, let's start counting the years. This is, I'm done with those people. For ten generations, our great-grandchildren will be dead and they'll still be in that place. And God placed a curse upon the entire nation of Moab. He calls them, in the book of Psalms, He calls them His washpot. Twice. He, Judah is my lawgiver, that's what He says. Judah is my lawgiver, Moab is my washpot. Can you imagine being called a wash pot by God? Like, the wash pot. You're going to do your dishes in the wash pot. Get your dishes. There's a plate. I like my plate. I put it in here and wash it off, and I dry it and put it away. Or I wash my clothes in the wash pot, and I wring them out, and I take care of my clothes. I kick the wash pot when I'm done. Empty the water out. God says, I'm going to use Moab for my own purposes. Moab is just my wash pot. But then we come into Isaiah in chapter 56, and I notice that God has placed a curse upon Moab as a people, but God is not always against every person. So listen to the words of Isaiah 56. Here's verses 6 and 7. God is merciful. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve Him, and to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of My covenant, even them will I bring to My holy mountain, and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon Mine altar, for Mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all 
people. So God made a provision, even though He has cursed the entire people of Moab, God made a provision that individuals from within Moab who wanted to do right would come and humble themselves before God. Aren't you glad that God makes this provision for all the peoples of the earth? That if you'll come to Him in humility, that He will in no wise cast you out. So you say, hang on a second, how is it that Ruth is able to become right with God? It's because God is merciful. And He's faithful to His promises. So we come into verse number 4. You're there in Ruth chapter 1. Poor Elimelech's left there with the two sons. Now verse number 4. They took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years, and Milon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. That's a sad note here that she has not only lost her husband, she's now lost her sons, and with losing her sons, she's lost a lineage. This is a very important thing for her. Naomi, married to Elimelech, The two of them go off to Moab, spend some time with their sons. Husband dies. At least she still has hope in the two boys. The two boys get married. Now listen to this. In days that predate birth control, ten years without a child, and then they die. This is devastating for her. She's literally living a tragedy. And this is so big a deal that the rest of the book is going to unpack this problem. They don't mention it right now, but you'll get to see it in the coming chapters. Naomi's inheritance that is there because of Elimelech. Elimelech owns some land. He has an inheritance within the Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And now he dies. That inheritance passes to the two boys. And the two boys died. Who gets it now? She doesn't. The Moabitess women don't get it. When Naomi dies, that's the end of the line for them. That inheritance is probably going to end up getting absorbed out into the other family. We might as well say Elimelech's family line is done. A lineage is a big deal, especially for those people of Israel. I think you and I get a glimpse of that, of how big it is for us. Israel is no different. She's got no husband, no sons, no lineage. She's in a strange country, and she's broken. You can see that down in verse 19. And she and Ruth, I'll just go ahead and tell you that. We'll see it in a minute. So they too, verse 19, they too went until they came to Bethlehem. She's going home. It came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, and they said, is is, is this Naomi? She's been gone for, I'll say, 11 years plus. Is that Naomi? She moved out of here a long time ago. Where's her husband? Somebody told me that she had kids. Is this Naomi? She's aged. And watch what her response is in verse 20. She said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt, listen to the words, very bitterly with me. You see, if you set up your life and your mindset around when bad things happen, it must be God is mad at me. You end up in a place like Naomi where you've gone through a tragedy. And let's be honest this morning, friends. Tragedies happen. And if your mind is wrapped around an idea that says, God, when bad things happen, God must be angry with me. You end up walking back into Bethlehem, bitter, saying, God's the one that did this to me. Friend, can I encourage you this morning? God allows things to happen in our lives, but they're so that we will look to Him, we will find shelter in Him, and we will see the goodness of God in those days that we are struggling. I hope that you seek Him for shelter, because when you do, you'll find out that you can trust Him. She begins her journey back, come back to verse number 6. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. She had heard the country, in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited His people and given them bread. 
What a moment to be jealous. You left the house of bread, went to Moab, lost everything, and now you're in the far country and you hear that there's bread at the house of bread. What a moment of jealousy. She packs up. It's time to go home. Verse 7. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house, and the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Go home. No need to follow me. You've been kind to me. Just go ahead and go home. Verse 9. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voice and wept. Together there was a collective mourning over loss. The loss of their husbands. The loss of what future they might have had together. And they recognized that things are not going to be the same going forward. Can I take a moment here, step aside from this text, and just speak to you pastorally? As I listened last week in life groups, and I realized that one statement I made last Sunday was taken perhaps a little bit differently than I intended. I made a statement last week that when it comes my time to lay in the coffin box, don't hold a house cry for me. Celebrate my life. For I am going to be with Jesus, which is far better. I did not realize when I said that, I did not realize that there would be an undertone that might be understood in a different way than I, I intended. And so I began to hear undertones that said, perhaps house cry is wrong. And I want to correct that. Friend, there's nothing wrong with a house cry. There's nothing wrong with that. It is very natural to mourn the loss of a loved one. That's very natural. Do you realize that God created us, and when He created us, He did not create us to die? Do you realize that? In the garden, He created Adam and Eve sinless. But it was because sin came into the world that death passed upon all men. God did not create us in sin for death. And so it's very natural for us to mourn the fact that someone passes away. You might remember John 11, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Do you remember what Jesus did? He wept. Now, I don't think He wept because He missed Lazarus, because He already knew that in five minutes He's raising Him from the dead. I don't think He's missing Lazarus and that's why He's crying. I think, he's, I think Jesus wept because He's seen the effect of sin in the world. That is a very good reason for us to weep. God, why is it that we die? I pray regularly, even so come, Lord Jesus, make all things right. But we do not weep as those who have no hope. And so when a brother or sister in Christ closes his eyes in sleep, oh, we rejoice. It's okay to cry. It's okay. But we don't weep as those who have no hope. And so I just come back to my own personal. Skip the house cry for me. Okay? You hear they're holding the house cry, just boycott it. Alright? Come hug my wife. Love one another. Come to the funeral, but don't wail. Alright? That's my own personal wishes, and I'd appreciate if you'd hold to them. But if you want to do something else, there's nothing wrong in something else. And so here we see this mother, Naomi, daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they hold each other as they know. Going forward, things will not be the same. Elimelech's dead. My mom and my are dead. Naomi's going home. She's telling the two girls to stay back. Now look at verse number 10. They said to her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and also should bear sons, would you tarry for them till they're grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much. 
for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi just explained to them it's impossible. One, she's too old to have children. Second, if God were to give a miracle and she says, if I got married tonight and even had a baby right now, are you going to wait around 20 years for that kid to grow up so that you can marry him? Come on. It's too late. And so she encourages them to leave. So verse 14, they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. Naomi's headed home. She lost her husband's companionship. She lost her sons. She lost her lineage. At least she's going back to regain a nation. And in the Old Testament, it's worth pointing out that a spiritual relationship with God in the Old Testament is directly tied to how closely you get back to Israel. The temple is not built yet at this time. They have the tabernacle. The closer you get to the tabernacle is a metaphor or a picture for how close you are to God. That's the picture that's seen throughout the Old Testament. We don't have that picture in the New Testament. For each one of us who is a believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we move geographically in the New Testament from being at a place to being together. That's the big picture in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, she's headed back to being with God. And so she goes closer to Israel. And as we've said many times already, when the storms of life come, you will find that He is a shelter in which you can trust. So let's take the rest of our time and see God's provision for her as she gets closer to Him. First one that I notice here is in verse 14. I take it straight out of verse 14. God gave her a true friend in Ruth. God gave Naomi a true friend in Ruth. She is elderly. She will not remarry. But the thing that she is seeking as an elderly widow, the thing she's seeking is companionship. I know this from having sat and done counseling with elderly widows. Becky and I recently sat with one elderly widow, and I'll never forget, her husband had just passed away about three months before. We recently sat with her, and she was just happy and talking all along until she got to the point where she started talking about what were the evenings like. She said, I sit here and it's so quiet. And she began to cry. You realize that an elderly widow all by herself is seeking companionship. She just wants somebody to be with her. Look at the word that's used here in verse number 14. The both girls, they lifted up their voice and they wept. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. In other words, kissed her Goodbye. But what did Ruth do? Ruth clave to her. I don't know if that word kind of echoes in your mind like it does mine. Genesis 2.24, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. It's the exact same word. I hate the fact that in this current generation I have to make mention of this. But Ruth did not become a husband to Naomi. It's only in the current generation and within the last 30 years that people would even think that way. Scripture never talks that way. That would be stupid for us to even think that. But Ruth fills a a space of a friendship and a companionship to Naomi that Naomi lost when her husband died. God gave her a true friend in Ruth. And I look down through the verses that follow. Look at verse 15. She, Naomi, said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people, unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And listen to the words that Ruth says in verse 16. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee. Don't ask me to leave you. I'm with you. I'm going to be your friend. Don't ask me to leave you. She continues on. Don't ask me to return from following. Naomi's broken, but God's filling a void for her right now. Verse 16, 
continues on, whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God will be my God. Do you hear this? This is a true friend and a true companion. Naomi, it doesn't matter where you go. I'm with you. I'm sticking with you. You live somewhere, I'm living with you. Your God is my God. Oh, Orpah can turn around and go back to her family and the words of Scripture go back to her gods, but not me. I'm going with you, Naomi. You've been a true friend. You've shown me the true God. I'm going with you and I'm worshiping with you and I'm going to live with you. I'm going to stay with you. And the words in verse 17, Where thou diest will I die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, listen to these words, It's not a marriage, but it's as close as you can get. If aught but death part thee and me. Do you hear the echoes of till death do us part? This is as close a companionship as you can get. I'm going to be your true friend, Naomi. The very thing that you lack and the very thing you sit up at night and you think, I wish I had somebody to talk to. Ruth says, I'm going to sit there and I'll be your friend. I'm going to stay with you. You see, God's restoring to Naomi as she comes closer to Him. God's restoring things that she's lost. Not only did He give her a friend, God gave Naomi a son in Obed. Now, i got to warn you. If you don't know the book of Ruth, spoiler alert. Ruth's going to have a baby. You'll find that in chapter 4. And that baby's going to come through a guy named Boaz. I won't take the time to develop the story because that's next week's story. But I see Naomi in chapter 1 at the beginning of the book, and I see Naomi in chapter 4 at the end of the book. And so since we're talking Naomi's story, we'll just kind of give you the pieces. Spoiler alert, Ruth ends up getting married to Boaz. The two of them have a baby by the name of Obed. So look at it happen in verse number 13. God gives Naomi. And you go, wait a second. No, God gave Ruth. No, He didn't. He got, God gave Naomi a son. Look at the words in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee, which is seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. Naomi raised this baby. Now watch what's said in the next verse. Verse 17. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here's little baby Obed that was born to Boaz and Ruth. And Naomi stepped in and said, Excuse me. God's restoring a lot of stuff right now. And that one's mine. I mentioned at the beginning... Elimelech had an inheritance that should have been passed to Malon and Chilion. We'll develop the kinsman redeemer later on. But the kinsman redeemer Boaz steps in and fulfills the point, the, the work of Malon or Chilion, so that the inheritance then will skip over Boaz's generation, and the inheritance of Elimelech is then passed directly to Obed. So that's the reason Naomi holds this baby and says, I have a son, for the inheritance will go to this baby. You see, she lost a son, and God gave her a son. And not only did God give her a son, God gave her a lineage. You see, when she was back in Moab, everything was falling apart, and now she's come back to God and found shelter in God, and now we get to see... God gives Naomi a lineage. Look at verse number 17 again. They called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez, and this is why I think Samuel wrote it, because it's in the days of David when he writes. These are the generations of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, 
Aminadab begat Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Here we go. Now it's getting serious. Verse 21. And Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David. That's right. You've got a lineage now. So David, who becomes the most beloved king in all of Israel's history, from the town of Bethlehem, Judah, of the line of the Ephrathites. If you know the biblical prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, O thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are the smallest among all the cities in Judah, yet from out of you shall come one who will reign over all the people. That's not just David, that's Jesus. So here's a lineage. You want to talk about a great lineage. Naomi went from I've got nothing to she's the great grandmother for David and then through David for Jesus Christ Himself. You see, what a great lineage. And I just think, you see, the fact that it's written in David's time tells me that they've been talking about this story for a couple of generations before Samuel wrote it down. And I just wonder if perhaps it went something like this. You remember David was the youngest of the brothers. Wasn't the tallest. Wasn't the fairest looking. He was the one that in the family, when Samuel came to anoint the next king, he was the one that they forgot to bring to the house. All the other brothers got brought, you know, Jesse's there, I think you like this one. No, maybe it was this one. And God keeps going, no, 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 no. Samuel's scratching his head, I can't figure out why this is. Jesse, did you bring me all the boys? And so, oh yeah, David! David's out in the back taking care of the sheep. Hey, somebody go get David and bring him in here. David comes in. You see, David was the baby in the family. David's not going to be a king. He's the baby. I wonder if David's mom sat down with him and told him the stories like this. I wonder if David's mom said, She would have had no idea of what was to come. She has no idea that there's going to be somebody named Solomon. She doesn't know about Rehoboam. She doesn't know about Jesus to come. All she knows is God's promise, one day the Messiah will come. She has no idea. She gets to be a part of this. And there she sits with David. I don't know how old David's at the time. Maybe five. David's sitting there and, I don't know, they've been playing marbles together or whatever. And she says to David, you know your dad? Your dad's name is Jesse. And David says, yeah, I know dad, I know dad, I know dad. And then he says, uh, then, then mom says to him, now your grandpa probably has passed away by now. Your grandpa, his name was Obed. Now I got to tell you about Obed. And she begins to unpack the story and tell the story about how Obed was raised by his grandmother. Well, why, why, would, why would he be raised by his grandmother? Oh, his grandmother, his grandmother, that's Naomi. Naomi was the one who didn't have anything. In fact, we inherited because of Naomi. She didn't have anything at one point, but God gave her everything. And we now have a family and a lineage. And he goes, oh, tell me about Naomi. Oh, well, you've got to hear about Naomi. And you notice there in verse number 21, it said, Salmon begat Boaz, Boaz begat Obed. Well, that gets repeated in another lineage in Matthew chapter 1. And I'm sure that David's mother would have known this story very well. Matthew chapter, five, uh, chapter 1 and verse 5 says this, Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And if you know your Old Testament history, you would understand that This family line, Boaz, his mother is Rahab, if you remember Rahab the harlot from Jericho. You see, God's been in on getting Gentiles who would humble themselves. God's been giving them chances all along. It wasn't just Ruth that got a chance. It was her mother-in-law as well on the other side. And God bringing a family together so that He can have a lineage in Naomi gained back a great lineage. I said at the beginning, when the storms of life come, you'll find that He is a shelter in which you can trust. I asked you to put your 
paper in Luke 6. Would you come back over there with me? So I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 6 and verse 46 was where we took our Scripture reading this morning. And I think I can hear Jesus talking to us today. Because a lot of us call ourselves believers and we sit in church and we listen to the preaching of the Word and we stand together and we sing. And I can hear echoes as Jesus says these words, verse 46. Why, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In other words, there's two ways to live. There's the way to live where you say, yes, I'm trusting Him, but really when the storms of life come, you go running to go trust something else. Or there's the way of living that says, I trust in Him no matter what comes. I will plant a foundation into the Word of God. I will not allow the storms to shake me because I'm trusting Him. And now listen to what he says in verse 47. Whosoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you to what he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid a foundation on a rock. Do me a favor and put out of your mind the song about the rain, rain, rain and the flood, flood, flood. Just put that out of your head right now. Listen to the words of Jesus. Did you hear what He said? If you come to Him and hear Him and you do His words, it's like you dropped your foundation for your house down onto a rock. And then when the flood comes, the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it. For it was founded upon a rock. And you already know what happens to the opposite one. And so I ask of you this morning, where do you place your trust? Do you place your trust in Him who will be your shelter, the shelter in whom you can trust? Or when you see the storm coming, you start running around, trying to think things out for yourself. I'm going to figure it out. I can do this. I know somebody that can help me. Oh friend, come to Him for He is a shelter in whom you can trust. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that You would help us to look to Jesus Christ alone. I pray that we would not seek shelter on our own, but instead that we would come seeking the Lord Jesus as our shelter. But I thank You for the goodness that You've bestowed upon our lives. I pray that when storms come along, that we would not be shaken, but instead we would be firmly rooted, founded upon the truth that I put my trust in Jesus. I listen to His words and I do them. And Lord, I pray that our lives would be a result of that trust. That we would be strong, not shaken about, and Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that we would find strength in You alone. For it's in Your beautiful name I ask it. Amen.